Genesis chapter 18, verses 16 through 33, to uh, echo what uh, Pastor David said in the first service and in the second service, Paul instructs us in uh, 1 Timothy 2 to pray and pray for those that are in high positions, that are officials. He says to do so that we would lead a quiet and dignified life. I find it increasingly difficult to um, have a faithful loving Christian witness with the onslaught of social media and the volatility that exists there and even in our culture. I saw something here recently and it was a meme or a picture of somebody who had a little uh, text box with the words in it, I will be your friend regardless of who you vote for. I think that's a good posture for Christians, by the way, that we're to be friends, be kind, speak the truth in love. Uh, um, Paul says in Ephesians 6 that our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Our struggle is not against humanity, but against spiritual forces. And so, um, anyway, thanks for Cody reminding us about that. Um, I don't know if this is something you struggle with. This is something I struggle with. And if you do struggle with it, it won't be real vulnerable, but I'd appreciate you maybe raising your hand, standing up, saying I received that so I'm not alone by myself on the stage. So uh, I, I know that talking on the phone, texting, emailing, posting, tweeting, snapping, whatever you want to do on the phone while you're driving is irresponsible, foolish, dangerous. It's actually a violation of the sixth commandment, right? The sixth commandment is do not, you're like, I didn't, I don't want to, I don't want to quiz on a Sunday morning. I came to listen to you tell me, do not murder, right? So how is texting or emailing a violation of the sixth commandment? Well, the, the, the thrust of that commandment is not just the physical taking of life, but it actually means that you will be mindful of other people's well-being as you live your life. So if I'm driving and I'm texting, emailing, tweeting, posting, what am I not doing with you? Not being mindful of your life. And I'm in violation of that commandment. So um, I know that to be true, and I have deep disdain for people who do that. It irritates the mess out of me. I'll be driving I'm with my wife, and I'll see people. I'm like, look at them. They're texting they're on the phone, and no less than 7.8 seconds later, what am I doing? I'm texting, or I'm calling, or I'm doing something, and I am a, yeah, my wife said it loud, or Lucy, I'm a hypocrite, okay, and you are as well, many of you are as well, okay, let's just be honest, Um, or I'm driving down the road, and all of my um, issues pertain to driving typically, you can pray for me, I'm driving, and it's 40 miles per hour going down the road, and there are times times not a lot of times but there are times there are sometimes not a lot of times there are times where I drive 40 miles per hour there's not a lot and I won't tell you if I'm above or below the speed limit and there are times when I'm driving the speed limit I think God is providential over time I don't need to speed I'm going to go to the speed limit he has ordained before the creation of time that I'm going to get there exactly when I'm supposed to get there He knows I'm supposed to, Romans 13, be under the law, not above the law, not beside the law. And he's given the law for our good, and so I'm going to go 40 sometimes, not a lot of times, sometimes. And I look to my right, and I I see Mark Pease, and I I look to my left, and I see Bill Heron, and they're going down Ray Road, and they are floating. They're going 48, 57, and I look at them with great disdain, and I think, those guys, what pagan, filthy sinners they are. And then 7.8 seconds later, I think, I really need to get to this meeting a little more quickly than what, 40 miles per hour. And so I put the pedal to the metal, and I'm going a little faster than 40. I would be a hypocrite. My sense of justice is skewed. 
I think the way that I view the world is right. <laughs> Do you ever think that? The way I view the world is perfect and right and accurate, but my sense of justice is skewed and arbitrary. Here's another example. You know how they have those 10 items or less lanes at um, grocery stores or um, various stores? And at times, I'll go through those lanes and I will count my items and I'll think I have nine items or I have 10. And I'll see some of you jokers in those lanes <laughs> and you'll have, you won't have 10, you'll have like 67 items. And I'm looking, you, looking at you with disdain. And if in God's providence our eyes happen to meet, I will let you know with my posture that I disapprove of your life. Okay, because you're clearly not, you, you think you're a law unto yourself. But what happens sometimes is I'm in a rush and I have 67 items and there's nobody in the 10 item or less lane. So I get in the lane and all of a sudden the floodgates open and 77 people follow me and you're looking at me saying, what is that joker doing with all of his items? I am a, I'm a hypocrite and you are as well. Welcome to Foothills, you are a hypocrite, okay? My sense of justice is skewed. It's arbitrary. It's self-serving at times. I'm not consistent. I'm not accurate at times. At times I am, but what I think is right, I don't always do, and what I think is wrong, I don't always not do. God is always just. His justice is not skewed. It's not arbitrary. Aren't you thankful when you're thinking lucidly and clearly? that the world does not operate based upon how you think it should operate? I mean, when you're thinking clearly, some of you right now think, no, 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 that would be a good place. You're not thinking clearly, okay? When we think clearly about the world and how the world should operate, I am grateful that God is in control and his sense of justice is not skewed and not arbitrary. We're gonna read Genesis 18, verses 16 through 33. It's gonna be on the screens. This is a lot to read. I want us to read it. There's four scenes in Genesis 18 and 19. I mentioned last week I was going to preach on a text that's pretty weighty. As I was studying this text, there is a lot that I want to say and need to say, and that's appropriate to say. So I've split this sermon into two sermons. Next week is going to be scenes three and four. Scene one is God's pronouncement to Abraham that he is going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. He declares it, and then we have this really remarkable conversation between Adam and God where Adam intercedes on behalf of Sodom and Gomorrah that's scene two scene three is where they actually show up in the town talk with Lot and there's this infamous part of of Genesis 19 that I'm going to spend a majority of time next week and then scene four part four if you will is where he actually destroys this town so we're going to look at scenes one and scenes two today with a big idea with a main idea that if there's a failure to adhere or obey God's ways in terms of justice and righteousness, there can be judgment, even severe or horrific judgment. Failure to obey God's ways in terms of justice and righteousness can result, can, not always, praise God, can result in judgment, sometimes horrific and severe judgment. So let me read Genesis 18, verses 16 through 33. It'll be on the screens as well. Then the, men, then the men set out from there, and they looked down toward Sodom. 
And Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? For I have chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, meaning egregiously grave, uh, tremendously grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me, and if not, I will know. So the men turned from there and went toward Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the fifty righteous are lacking, will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And God said to Abraham, I will not destroy it if I find forty-five there. Again he spoke to him and said, Suppose forty are found there. He answered, For the sake of forty, I will not do it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Suppose thirty are found there. By the way, are you getting kind of the bird picture that the Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love? Okay, this is an example of that. Behold, I behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry. I will speak again but this once. Suppose 10 people are found there. God answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. This is God's word to us. What, you, what I w- want you to see this morning is failure to keep or obey God, specifically in terms of his ways of justice and righteousness, can, not always, can bring about severe judgment. Now, if you look at um, chapter 18, verses 18 through 19, this is kind of the first bookend if you will chapter 18 verses 18 through 19 and chapter 19 verse 29 are bookends why am I pointing this out God has called and renamed Abram to Abraham saying that you will be the father of a multitude of of what nations what is he about to do to Sodom and Gomorrah he's about to destroy a nation He wants them to understand, you're going to be the father of a multitude of nations, and I want you to be privy to some things I'm about to do. There's one nation that is going to cease to exist. And just in case you think that my promises aren't going to come to fruition, look at chapter 19, verse 29. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God did what to Abraham? He remembered Abraham. Remember, who's this written to? It's not written to Abraham. Abraham, it's not written to us, it's written to the people of Israel. And as Israel is hearing and listening to Genesis being read to them or reading it, they might be 
inclined or tempted to believe that God is not going to come through on his promises to Abraham because he's about to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah because of the outcry of this great sin. But he wants us to understand, no, God is going to be faithful. He's going to see his promises come to fruition. Chapter 19, verse 29, and God remembered Abraham. Over 70 times the word remember is used in the Old Testament. And every single time it's used, it describes and refers to God moving towards someone. So God is not aloof. He's not complacent. He's not passive. When the Bible says God remembers, it means that he's moving towards someone. When it says God remembered Abraham, who's he moving towards? He's moving towards Abraham. He wants Abraham to know, I've remembered you. I've not forgotten my promise to you. It's unconditional. I will see it come to fruition. Now Moses tells us in chapter 18, verse 16, then the men set out from there and they looked up or down. They looked down, okay? It's not just talking about the topography of that day, though that's true. Where they were was about 3,200 feet above sea level. So when the Bible actually describes details of places and geography and topography, the Bible is actually true. They were actually 3,200 feet above sea level, and they are looking down at Sodom and Gomorrah. But another meaning to this phrase When God looked down or they looked down, it actually describes looking down upon morally questionable situations. So if you were to do a word study and to find out the times or the instances in the Bible where God is described at looking down, more often than not, it's looking down upon a morally questionable situation. That was what was going on in Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, I've been here just shy of three and a half years. I've preached, and I could calculate how many I've, I've preached, go back and look at the sermon schedule. I've preached probably about 140, 150 sermons or so. And next Sunday is probably top two, top three sermons that I will have preached at Foothills in terms of difficulty. So I'm, I'm, gonna ask, I'm asking you for grace. I'm asking you for humility. I'm asking you if you have a young person, a high school student a middle school student middle school students probably won't be here they'll be in Sunday school but if you have a high school student or a young adult or a friend or if you're coming and you want to know what is Nate going to talk about in terms of Genesis 19 Sodom and Gomorrah I'm asking you to come with humility teachability and pray for grace because this is a very important issue that many churches are acquiescing to the culture and it's difficult right so that's why I'm taking two sermons to preach on this but God looks down not just down um, in terms of the geography, but he looks down upon the situation in Sodom and Gomorrah upon a morally questionable situation. But he wants to remind Abraham, Abraham, my promises to you are not empty. They're gonna come to fruition. Now, just to help you see the gravity of this text and what's going on there, I want you to, there's three words that are used in this passage, outcry, wicked, and righteous, okay? Because what's the big idea? The big idea is um, failure to obey God's ways can bring about judgment. Oftentimes severe and oftentimes horrific judgment. The outcry, the word outcry is there and God says that their outcry has come to me. 
The outcry in the city from Sodom and Gomorrah has come to me. What does the word outcry mean? It means a judicial term of cry for help by someone who is oppressed. Now, if you know anything about Genesis 19, you know what's going on in Genesis 19. There, it's an infamous passage speaking about describing sin of a sexual nature and of a particularly egregious sexual nature. And we rightly think of that in terms of Genesis 19, but it's much more comprehensive than that. The outcry is not just because sexual sin. It's more comprehensive than that. It describes the oppressed and the brutalized. It's used for the cry of the oppressed widow and the orphan. It's used of the oppressed servant and the cry of the Israelites. Jeremiah the prophet uses it to describe the outcry or the scream of an individual or a city when that individual or city is attacked. The outcry, a judicial term, justice needs to be served, but justice has been a foregone conclusion. There's no justice, there's no righteousness, and the city is crying out. There's an outcry to God. David Wells, a believer, a professor, an author, said this about this passage. There is violence on the earth. The liberated search only for power. Industry despoils the earth. The powerful run roughshod over the weak. The poor are left to die on street gates. The unborn are killed before they can ever see the rich and beautiful world that God has made. The elderly are encouraged to get on with the business of dying so that we might take their places. The many forms of violence that take place in our world provide stunning reminders for the last several decades of the delusions that have enticed the West. Sodom and Gomorrah is not just then, it is now. It is today. We live in a very real way, theologically, Sodom and Gomorrah. It's not just in Genesis chapter 19. Their sin is grave. In fact, it's a word that means egregiously wicked. What does the word wicked mean? Those who have no part in the promise of God and no interest in obeying God. So this is the city of Sodom and Gomorrah, in a city full of wicked people who have no part with God because they have rejected the promise of God and they have no interest in obeying God. The righteous are those who are joined to God through promise, not through our effort, not through their behavior, not through moralism, not through trying to be a good person, not through some cosmic scale that the good deeds outweigh the bad deeds and God's gonna say, hey, come on in and you're now righteous. We know now that to be righteous is to actually believe in the promises that have been told throughout the history that culminate in the person of Jesus and we come to God through the Son and what happens is God who made him who knew no sin, Jesus, to be sin for us, he gives us the righteousness of God. What is the righteousness of God that we get as a Christian. It's comprised of the obedience of Jesus. So if Jesus had not been obedient, he would not have been righteous. And we would have been given his unrighteousness. But there's this great cosmic exchange that when you become a Christian, God gives to you his son's righteousness. And what does Jesus take? Our sin, 
our unrighteousness so that we can stand before a holy and just Father and understand though there is a, though the main idea is failure to obey God and his ways can bring about severe and oftentimes horrific judgment and that would be our plight, that would be our future, our destiny, but in Christ who is righteous, we get the righteousness of Jesus and the judgment is not ours because it's been poured out on Christ. The righteous are those who are joined to God through promise, not through effort, not through merit, not through moralism, not by pulling ourselves up by our proverbial bootstraps and trying to do a better life. No, we are joined to God and are seen as righteous through the promise and we have a desire to obey God. It does not mean, as I so often say, that you will live a perfect life that you will never have some serious valleys and some serious lows and you won't struggle with sin. But the pattern of your life, there is this quietness and sometimes this, this loud voice. He says, I am not my own. I'm called to obey God. And thankfully, God has changed us through the gospel and enables us to do that. And hearing this, Israel believed Right? The original audience, Israel believed and was called to continue to believe that God is a righteous judge and righteousness exalts a nation. We see that in Genesis. We see that in Exodus. We see that in Deuteronomy 28. We see that in First and Second Samuel, the period after the Judges. We see that in First and Second Kings. We see that in the book of Judges. We see that in Second Samuel 7. We see that in on and on and on, that righteousness exalts a nation and that a nation should seek to preserve society through righteousness. And that's in part our responsibility as people who vote. This is not a plug for a candidate, but it is a plug to understand that our duty and responsibility as a Christian is to vote and to help preserve righteousness Understanding no candidate, no campaign is going to bring about God's kingdom. I hope that we understand that. That our hope and identity is not in a political party, it's not in a political candidate, it's in Christ. But we should as Christians seek to preserve and actually propound ideas that are reflective of the Bible. Understanding that we do so imperfectly, deficiently, and insufficiently. Okay? But Israel believed righteousness exalts a nation. And Sodom and Gomorrah is not a, a nation that has been exalted. And the Bible says in verse 21, they decide to go down. So God has made a pronouncement. I'm going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham intercedes. We come to this pretty amazing part two, scene two, if you will, where Abraham begins to appeal to God about sparing or rescuing the city. It's a really amazing dialogue. He's, he's interceding not on his own behalf, but for the city. And here's some of the descriptions of Abraham. He's authentic. He's passionate. He's selfless. He's committed. He's respectful. He's self-deprecating. He refers to himself as dust and ashes in verse 27. He's humble. He appeals to God's just character in verse 25. He's not bargaining or haggling with God. You think, man, Abraham was way out of line. He's bargaining or haggling with God. This is much like a child testing parental boundaries in terms of a curfew. So you have a junior in high school that just got their car. It's Friday night. They do not want to stay home with you right? Those days are done. 
Those days are coming, and it's deeply disheartening, by the way. Pray for me, because I'm having a hard time, okay? And my kids are not even double digits yet. Um, and so they don't want to hang out with you, and so they, they're going to be gone Friday night. And they say, hey, mom, dad, stepmom, grandparents, um, I'm going out. And I want to know what my curfew is. How about 2 a.m.? And you don't, you don't laugh in, in disbelief that they would even ask you that. You just calmly, collectively, because you're wise, you're mature. You don't react to all the antics that your kids do. 2 a.m., no. 1.45, no. 1.30, no. 1 o'clock, no. 12.45, no. 12.30, uh-uh. How about 12? Yeah, 12 sounds fine. Got mom and dad down to 12. Mom and dad knew, you know, that 12 was the threshold. If they had said 11.30, you would have been fine with that too. It's not like they bargained you down and finagled you to get you down. You just knew that's the threshold. I, I ain't going any later than 12. God knew he wasn't going any lower than 10. Abraham, 50, 45, 40, 30, 20. And God said, I will spare the city if there are how many? 10 people. Now, if you know the story, next week we'll walk through it. God does not spare the city, which tells us what about this city? There were not ten righteous people, not perfect people, not people without sin, people who wanted to be joined to God through his promise and wanted to obey him, not perfectly. There were not ten people, which tells us God knew what was going on in the city, and this was a deeply wicked city. Now, no doubt... One of the things that we can glean from Genesis 18 and 17 and 16 and 19 is that Moses is juxtaposing, putting side by side, Abraham and Lot. There's this constant comparison between Abraham and Lot. So let me, let me give you some examples. Abraham runs to his guest in the beginning of Genesis 18. It says a lot about his posture. He runs to his guest. What does Lot do? He's sitting down at the city gate and he just does this. Is there a difference in terms of running to the guests and meeting them and just merely rising? The Bible says there absolutely is, okay? Abraham requests that he finds favor in their eyes. Lot doesn't do anything of the sort. Abraham provides a royal feast and scurries around making preparations while Lot provides the bible says a feast as well but we know that his feast is comprised of bread i think moses is being sarcastic i honestly i think there, there's sarcasm in the bible abraham provides this sumptuous feast this young calf that abraham made sure that it actually was a good calf and it represented him because it was indeed going to represent him when he gives this gift of hospitality and lot provides this sumptuous feast of bread sarcasm Abraham prays for the rescue of the city. Who does Lot pray for? He prays for himself. Chapter 19, verses 19 through, verses 19 through 20. One is other-oriented. One is self-oriented. Lot chose, when given the option, the nice, fertile, good ground that he should have allowed Abraham to actually select. But Abraham, in his graciousness, says, Lot, foolish son, arrogant, prideful nephew, what would you like? Ooh, I'm taking that, uncle. And Abraham gives them the nice, fertile 
land. Though Abraham struggled at times with his faith, he waits on God to come through in his promises. Abraham is the generous uncle to a foolish nephew in Genesis 13. Genesis 14, he's the strong, courageous warrior that Pastor Cody preached on a couple weeks ago where he summons and rallies 318 men from his family to go rescue his foolish nephew Lot. And here in Genesis 18, he is Abraham, the worshiper, the believer, who appeals to God to do what? Save and rescue the city. Now when we read the Bible, oftentimes, as I said last week, we want to do character studies we want to say what can i learn from this passage who am i supposed to be like who am i not supposed to be like Uh, lot did this and nathan you just walked through several examples and characteristics of lot he was foolish he didn't have a serious posture of belief towards the lord he was self-serving he was disrespectful he didn't take the things of god seriously and so basically um, what we need to glean from the bible is that we want to be like abraham and not be like lot because abraham did this or didn't do that and i just want to tell you that's not the point of the bible So here's a little graph I wanted to show you, and this is what I do. I don't always work through this as systematically, but I think this is a helpful visual for how we are to look at narrative, particularly Old Testament. Because does anybody, and this is audience participation day, safe, does anybody sometimes read the Old Testament and think, like, what's the point? Like, all the minor prophets, and what's going on, and how in the world am I supposed to believe and apply this to my life? Well, here's what I want to I show. Here's what I do when I'm preaching, okay, when I'm trying to study. Here's the text. Today, the text is Genesis 18, verses 16 through 33, right? That's what we read that earlier. There's the text. What we need to do and what every preacher should do and what every Christian should do when they study the Bible is that they should deal in what's called exegesis. You say, exahu? Is that a disease? What is that? No, it's actually, it just means studying the Bible, coming to an interpretation of the Bible. You say, well, Nate, why didn't you just write that down? Because I want you to think I'm smart. Secondly, because that's a lot to write. So I just wrote exegesis, okay? Here's the text and what a preacher is supposed to do, okay? And I love this phrase. A preacher is to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. I am many times too comfortable in my life and I need people to afflict my spirit to help me understand. I need to, I need to be dependent upon Jesus and oftentimes uh, we are to comfort the afflicted. We are to do both. Sometimes we're too comfortable, sometimes we're afflicted and we need God's comfort and we need God's affliction. And so we want to study the Bible and what does the Bible mean for them and then? We are not the them. We are not the then in Genesis 18. Who is it? It's Israel. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, written by Moses to Israel. That's the them, that's the then. There's a particular context, and we're not, I mean, some of us are old, but we're not that old, right? I mean, there's a them, there's a then. And what we have to do every time we read the Bible, study the Bible, when you're listening to a sermon, now that I've given you this, you're going to evaluate me. Maybe I shouldn't have given this, this to you. We want to engage in theological reflection, okay? Every Christian... And every non-Christian is a theologian. We think something about God. And so we want to reflect theologically, well, what does it mean? And we always want to go to the what? We always want to go here. This is a cross, right? We always want to interpret, understand the Bible in light of 
Jesus. As Jesus is rocking down the road to Emmaus, he explained from the law and the prophets, meaning the Old Testament, that how everything pointed to who? Himself. All right? So we need to interpret all of the Bible through the lens, through the street, the track, the avenue of the gospel, Christ. And then we need to think about application. How can I take Genesis 18, verses 16 to 33, understand what it means in terms of the them and then, do theological reflection through Jesus, and how can I bring it to bear? How can I apply it on my life to us now? Because isn't that the point? Like, we need handles. We need truth. We need assistance about the Bible and how does it bear and how does it apply to my life? I'm trying to live my life as a dad. I'm trying to live my life as a retired person. I'm going to work. I'm trying to be a mom. I'm involved in recreation. I've got this vocation. I've got neighbors. I've got struggles. I'm thinking about retirement. I've got all these things. How do I bring the Bible to bear upon us now? No wonder so many middle school students, high school students, young adults don't think about the Bible as relevant because preachers and Christians oftentimes don't make the Bible relevant. They think it doesn't matter. It's not germane to my life. And it absolutely is. But here's what we do. Here's what we do. If we're, if we're lucky, and we're in a church where they want to preach the Bible, and a lot of churches don't, by the way, and I got nothing good to say apart from the Bible. I think that I do, and some of you come and say, hey, you don't, and I'm, I'm thankful for that, okay? Text. What does it mean? What does it mean to the them and then? And what we do is we don't think about theological reflection, we don't think about the cross, and we go straight here. How, what's it apply for, how's it, what's it mean for us and now? And what have we just done? What have we just removed? Somebody said it, Jesus, we've just removed the gospel. What's the text, Genesis 18? What does it mean to them and then? And then we think, okay, okay, give me some application, give me some handles. And we bypass theological reflection. We don't think about the cross. Where is the power? There's where the power is. How can I not be like Lot? How can I not be like Abraham, who twice gives his wife and says, she's my sister, self-preservation? How can I, I mean, how can I change and actually believe in the promises of God that failure to obey in God's ways brings judgment? How do I do that? We have to go through the cross and think about application to us now. So let me, let me just walk through this real simply. What's the exegesis? What's this passage mean? I think the main idea of this passage, as I've said it 67 times, is failure to obey God's ways can, not always, but can bring about judgment. Oftentimes, severe and horrific judgment. What's the them and the then? Who's it written to? It's written to Israel. So most theologians, most pastors, most authors think that Israel is either wandering in the desert or they are in the promised land. So if we read Genesis 18, we understand what the big idea, what it means, how is it brought to bear on the them and the then? So if they are in the wilderness wandering, they would know all too well, failure to obey God's ways can bring about what? It can bring about judgment. They're they're living that. If they are in the promised land, what would it serve? It would serve as a reminder. Listen, you're in the promised land. 
I've given you commands. I've given you promises. I'm going to fight for you. You need to exercise dominion, be a light to the nations, be faithful to me. But if you're not faithful and you uh, revolt and you rebel against my ways, judgment can come upon you. And we think about that unique context and unique part of time. And oftentimes what we do is, okay, what does that mean? Am I wandering? I feel like I'm wandering. I feel like I'm in the promised land. I'm in America. I'm in the promised land. You're not in the promised land. Okay, so, so there's maybe there's lots of applications. And what we do is we skip, we skip over Jesus. We skip over Christ. We skip over the new covenant. How does it apply to us? All of us, like Abraham, like Lot, very simply, and there's much more that I could say, all of us, like Abraham, like Lot, have actually not perfectly obeyed God's ways of justness and righteousness. God gave a promise in Genesis 3. God gave a promise in Genesis 12. God gave a promise and he recapitulated again in Genesis 15. All throughout Genesis, he's reinstating and sharing the promises of God. You see it in Exodus. You see it in Deuteronomy 18, 15, where Moses says, there is going to come one after me who is a prophet, and all will listen to him. Who's that fulfilled in? Christ. 2 Samuel 7, this Davidic covenant, this king who's going to follow in the line of David, and his kingdom will be from everlasting to everlasting. Promise, promise, promise given to Israel. And now we have the New Testament, and there's been 400 years of silence. Christ comes on the scene, and he says, there's all these prophets prophecies and there's all these truths and I want you to know it's me it's me and you can incur judgment but if you'll believe and trust in me you can be spared from horrific judgment there is much more I could say and want to say here in just a moment but I'm going to end with this Sodom is brought up as a paradigm for divine judgment a warning against sin to all Israelites and anyone hearing or reading the story in order to reinforce the truth that failure to keep God's ways, God's truths can, not always, but can result in judgment. God does not ignore sin. God does not ignore sin. So here's what I want to do. We're going to, we do this the first Sunday of every month. The men are going to come and pass out the Lord's Supper or communion. And we believe that the Lord's Supper, communion, is symbolic. It's not an actual physical representation of the body and the blood of Jesus. But Jesus came and said, my body was broken for your sin. My blood was shed for your sins. And it's the ratification, the establishment of the new covenant, the new promise found in Jesus, whereby God will not remember people's sins anymore on account of the promise. And what I want to do, oftentimes we rush through the Lord's Supper and we don't give you time to think and reflect. And I'd like you just to reflect for the next couple minutes as the men are going ahead and coming and passing out the Lord's Supper for people who are believers in Christ. If you're a believer, you say, Nate, I know that I'm a believer Beyond a shadow of a doubt, I have trusted Christ and that is my only hope, then you are welcome to partake of the Lord's Supper. But I want you to think about this question. Failure to obey God's ways can bring about horrific or severe judgment. Where would we be, where would we be without 
Jesus. The Lord's Supper is a trifold action where you look to the past upon what Jesus has done on the cross, forever having ended the curse of sin through his resurrection. We look to the present right now, November 4, 2018 at 1146, and we think, what does it mean for my life now? Who am I in Jesus? I'm forgiven, I'm a saint, I'm a son, daughter of God. Praise God for that truth. And then we look to the future, past, present, future. We look to the future where God will come back to us and rescue us from this sin-infested, chaos-driven, dysfunctional world. Past, present, and future. So here's what I'll do. For the next couple minutes, I'd like you just to yourself, just think about where would we be if God had not come through on his promises that culminate in the person and the work of Jesus. And then I'll come back up. We'll take the bread and the juice together, and then we'll sing, all right? So just take a couple minutes. stand together we'll take the bread here in just a moment and then the juice Sodom and Gomorrah is a story about man and woman rebelling against God it's a story of God's justice that we'll look at in more detail next week it's a story that describes judgment that can come upon someone as they live in revolt to God's ways and God's truths If you want to understand your own behavior, and if you want to understand another person's behavior, you need to understand that all sin is grounded in a refusal to believe that God is good and is for our good. 
Adam and Eve did not say and set out on some journey, let's be evil and let's make a mess of our lives and every person after us. Rather, this is what they thought. We want to be happy. We want to be happy and God's commands don't look like they're going to bring me happiness. So I'm going to take things into my own matters because if I want to thrive, I don't want to adhere to God's ways. My heart hurts when my heart actually thinks that God's commands are burdensome. And I think that God, somehow you're not good and you're not for my good. And my heart hurts for friends and family members who think that God is some type of cosmic killjoy and wants to put his thumb and keep them down. And it's not true. The Bible says that God's commands and God's ways bring life everlasting and bring joy and peace. And what we see from Genesis 18 and Genesis 19 all the way through the cross is that God is too holy and too loving to allow us to remain as we are. And instead of pouring out his hot, furious wrath upon us, he pours it out on his son. That we who deserve God's wrath now stand free and not condemned and justified and forgiven and cleansed on account of God pouring out his wrath on the Son. So when you eat this bread, which isn't bread, I know, you're like, can you get some better stuff? You know, maybe we'll have a loaf of bread, we'll pass it around. But symbols are so powerful. It's symbolic of a real person who actually lived, whose body was broken for your sin, not his, willingly, sacrificially gave his life so that we could have life. Eat in remembrance of Christ. And his blood was literally poured out. Salvation, freedom demanded sacrifice and sacrifice comes through the giving of life, and to give one's life means blood has to be spilled. He gave his life. There can be no forgiveness of sins without the shedding of blood. We drink in remembrance of Christ. And we're going to sing, Hallelujah, what a Savior and what a great Savior Christ is.